Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We are in week three of our sermon series, Preaching Through the Book of Romans. We very much believe in expository preaching here at Covenant Community Church, line by line preaching through different books of the Bible, as the Bible is our, our lone authority. And so we've covered the, the first seven verses of chapter one in two separate sermons. First, we looked at the author's credentials, what, what made the Apostle Paul suitable to write this letter and, and, and why the church in Rome was to receive it favorably. And then last week, we contemplated the the purpose of the gospel that Paul was seeking to articulate as he moves forward for the sake of God's name. And now today, we will cover verses 8 through 15. And I know some of you, um, you you may be saying, wow, this this seems really slow. We're going to be in Romans for for a really long time. And and I hope that's exciting for for most of us. Um, But even if it isn't, maybe if I can encourage you, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the the famous preacher in London in, in the late 1900s, when he got to verse 8, when he preached the Romans, he was on his 15th sermon. And so we're on number 3, and so we could be going slower, um, but there is just such depth, right, in the Word of God, and mining it for its truth is, is really a, a journey of joy. And so we do recognize that there is wisdom in, in, in a balance, and so we want to teach the, the whole counsel of God, not just one particular book of the Bible, as Paul tells us in Acts. And so uh, I will do my best moving forward to, to move us forward at a healthy pace, and, and Lord willing, we will, uh, the Spirit will continue to, to mold our minds and inflame our hearts and empower our obedience as we proceed forward in His might. So our text this morning is Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, and once you've found your place there, please stand with me if you are able, out of respect for God as His Word is read to us this morning. God says this to us, starting in Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but brethren, the word of our Lord will remain forever. Amen. You may be seated. In the spring of 1993, CBS aired an action crime television drama that portrayed a gritty and tough but yet fair and loyal law enforcement official that together with his comrades, policed a community with tactics that were a bit abnormal. Martial arts was the go-to defense mechanism. Karate and and other forms of of martial arts were were the main tool that they used to enforce the law. The the show took place in in the heart of Texas, and it aired for eight seasons. 
and the reruns were, were shown on, on national television up to 2001. The star of the show was none other than Chuck Norris, who played the main character, Walker, Texas Ranger. And I can remember waking up on Saturday mornings as a kid and, and tuning in to as many reruns as, of Walker, Texas Ranger as my dad would permit me to consume. And the theme song of the show is stuck in my head to this day. I won't, I won't sing it to you, but it, it goes like this. In the eyes of a ranger, the unsuspecting stranger had better known the truth of wrong from right. Because the eyes of a ranger are upon you, and any wrong you do, he's going to see. When you're in Texas, look behind you, because that's where a ranger's going to be. The eyes of a ranger are upon you. Walker, Texas Ranger, had such a love for this community that he never took his eyes off of it. And this morning we are going to be considering not the eyes of a ranger, but the eyes of a saint. As we will see, the church in Rome, in receiving this letter, it is undoubtedly clear that the eyes of the Apostle Paul are upon them. He he is peering in their direction, and even though he's never been to them, he's never met them, as we will see, he's he's focused on them. His his gaze is transcending the distance, if you will, and his eyes cannot escape the church in Rome, and they cannot escape his sight. And so I entitled this sermon, The Eyes of a Saint Are Upon You. And the main idea we will consider is this. The Apostle Paul was given eyes to see... And he used them to look beyond himself to those who might benefit from the grace he has received. The Apostle Paul was given eyes to see, and he used those eyes to look beyond himself to those who might benefit from the grace he has received. And you'll notice in your worship folder that we will consider this text under the following three headings. A God-honoring dependence, a God-honoring desire, and a God-honoring duty. We will see a God-honoring dependence from verses 8 through 10, a God-honoring desire from verses 11 through 13, and a God-honoring duty from verses 14 and 15. And starting first with a God-honoring dependence from verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. Again, they read like this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, That without ceasing, I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It is clear from this text, verses 8 through 15, that, that Paul loves these people. Paul wants the church in Rome to glorify God. He wants them to think rightly about God. He wants them to have a a good, grounded, theological understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to devote 11 chapters to that. But he recognizes that he was given the gifts of salvation and a calling, like we talked about last week, for a purpose, for the sake of his name, to, to glorify God. And he takes his new calling to help serve the people of God very seriously. This is Paul's livelihood. This is the the air he breathes. This is his life. He he doesn't pray a prayer, become a Christian, and then somehow just practically forget about his new identity in the pursuit of other hopes and dreams. No, this salvation and calling is not on the back burner of his life. This is not something that he might return to someday if it's more convenient for him down the road. 
This consumes him. He can't escape this new salvation and this new calling that he's been given to the point that he's even laboring for people that he's never even met. He doesn't know these people personally. He's never looked them in the eye or, or shook their hand. He's never greeted them with a holy kiss. Paul was a kisser. I don't know if you have read the New Testament. Paul was a kisser. In the ancient Near East, that's how they, they greeted one another. He's never kissed a single cheek in Rome. And yet his eyes are upon them. He's devoted to them. Why? How? Because he knows their God. He knows their Messiah. He knows the same spirit that indwells him indwells them. And therefore he is motivated to look beyond himself to those God is calling him to minister to. Paul's giving us a, a window into his heart here a bit. He's, he's saying, before I unpack this theology for you, in the next 11 chapters, before we get really deep into what this gospel is, first you must know that I love you, that my eyes are upon you, my heart is with you, I'm devoted to you. Pastorally, he puts on the pastoral hat and says, because I have this new identity, I take it very seriously, and this is basic Christianity that I, that I love and care for you. And he does so by saying, first, in a manner of speaking, I, I recognize my dependence upon God. I can only go as the Lord directs. I'm at the mercy of the sovereign king. And so right from the jump, dear church in Rome, Paul is saying, God is sovereign, not me. God is in control. God is the only author on the pages of history. He writes the narrative. I am dependent upon God and God alone. And he acknowledges this reality in, in, in three different ways in verses 8 through 10. He affirms God's way in verse 8, God's witness in verse 9, and God's will in verse 10. Paul says, I am dependent upon God on his way, his witness, and his will. So let's just unpack these very briefly. Paul is dependent upon God's way. Verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. God's way is through Jesus Christ, brethren. It's the only way. Paul is saying it isn't through me. It isn't through Mary. It isn't through a pope. It isn't through a pastor. It isn't through your own good works. It is through Jesus Christ. This is the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Not only does this apply to my salvation, Paul is saying, meaning through Jesus is the only way to God. You can't be reconciled to God in any other way. Jesus says that himself in John 14. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the way to relationship with God is through Jesus. And notice also here that Paul says, I think my God, this is a personal relationship, personal relationship made possible through Jesus Christ, but then also, even after I have been given this new identity, even after I've been reconciled to the Father through the Son, I now continue to approach God through Jesus. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Brethren, we do not have the right to even approach God in prayer on our own accord. In and of ourselves, we have no right to even speak to the God of the universe. 
We in and of ourselves are so defiled and wretched that we can't commune with a holy God on our own. We need a mediator. We need an intercessor. We need an advocate. We need Christ Jesus. This is why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why Christians, when we, when we end our prayers, we, we do so in some form of saying, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 1.8 is, is one of the texts worth turning to, to explain why. And, and there are others, but, but Paul models this for us here. It is through Jesus Christ that he offers his thanks to God. He, he is able to cry, Abba, Father, and approach the throne of God with boldness, and with a holy confidence, because the Son, our elder brother, Christ Jesus, is our great mediator and advocate and intercessor. So when we pray, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is recognizing his dependence upon God's way. Next, he displays his dependence upon God's witness. Verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. What is Paul saying here when he says, God is my witness? What he is doing is is rooting his own validity, not in himself, but in God. Essentially, he's saying, listen, I I know this might sound crazy to you. I know we've never met, but, but I have a clean conscience in telling you this because God knows the truth. God is omniscient. God knows all. And so my confidence is, and my dependence is, is not on myself, but it's on God. He knows. His ears are open to my prayers. He knows that without ceasing, I've been mentioning you. Now, we may be wondering, because we're, we're biblically astute, that what do we do with Jesus' words in Matthew 5? when he tells us we shouldn't take a vow or an oath, we shouldn't swear to God. Rather, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so is that what Paul is doing here? Does this contradict in some way what Jesus taught in Matthew 5? And we want to say no, not not in the slightest. First, there, there are some nuances between I swear to God and for God is my witness. What Paul is doing here isn't saying my yes can only be believed because I am swearing to God. Rather, he's saying, God knows. God hears my prayers. God is my witness. His ears have been attentive to me. And so Paul in Romans 1 is, is not violating what, what Jesus is commanding against in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, Jesus is saying we, we shouldn't take a heavenly oath for such a flippant thing about, about trivial matters. And so, and so children, look up here for a second. You may have heard your friends say, I swear to God. Or, or you maybe have even said to your siblings, I, I swear to God I did not take your toy. Jesus warns us not to do that. He says we shouldn't take a, a heavenly oath about such a, a silly matter. We should just let our yes be yes and our, our no be no. And so just simply tell your brother it wasn't you. It's a, it's a, manner, a matter of taking the, the Lord's name in vain for calling upon him for such an insignificant thing. But, but that isn't what Paul is, is doing here. Rather what, rather, what Paul is doing is saying, God is omniscient. He knows. He is my witness. I am dependent upon him. He knows the truth. He can vouch that my heart is for you. Paul is dependent upon God's way, God's witness. Finally, he's dependent upon God's will. 
Verse 10. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul is keenly aware of the biblical truth present in the book of Proverbs. Listen to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. It says this. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Isn't that what we have here on full display? The heart of the apostle planning his way, all the while acknowledging that it is the Lord that establishes his steps. Paul is writing here, like we mentioned a couple weeks ago, he's he's probably writing from Corinth near the, the end of his third missionary journey. He's not yet to meet this church. This is not a church that was established under his own ministry. And you, and you may wonder, why, why, does that, why does that matter? Well, one of the reasons that it matters is because we have to understand where in the Bible we are reading, what, what context we are reading, what, what genre we are reading, what, what methods we are applying as we interpret the text. The, the Bible, of course, is our lone authority, but we don't approach every verse in the Bible the same in the sense that we, we use all the same interpretive rules. For instance, When we pick up the narrative in in Romans 1 here, it is important to realize and acknowledge that that our New Testament was was not assembled in in chronological order of the historical events as they occurred. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. That's the order of the, the first six books of the Bible. But that doesn't mean that they happened chronologically in that order. And this is why this is important. Look back just one page in your Bible. Look to the left, to Acts chapter 28. One page prior to Romans 1. And let's pick this up in verse uh, 14. It says this, There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apias and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul went to Rome in Acts chapter 28. And that comes before Romans chapter 1, where Paul is saying, I've longed to go to you. I've never been to you, but I long to come to you. I've not ceased in asking God that I may come to you. And this is not a contradiction of the verse just a chapter before in our Bibles. The letters of Paul, the details of Paul's ministry were never meant to be recorded in chronological order. Actually, fun fact, the books of Paul are ordered from longest to shortest. The longest letter to a church is Romans. The shortest letter to a church is Thessalonica. And so from longest to shortest. The longest letter to a person is First Timothy. The shortest letter to a person is Philemon. So First Timothy to Philemon and everything in between. Why am I telling you all this? One, again, it is important that as we read our Bibles, we must know where we're at in redemptive history. But two, isn't this Proverbs 16.9 on full display? As we understand the totality of Paul and his relationship with Rome, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Paul longs to go to Rome. And he ends up in Rome. But not as a friend or an apostle, but as a prisoner. 
The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And the Apostle Paul is rooting his aspirations in the will of God. He is dependent upon God's will. And here's the the big application this morning, brothers and sisters. Persistent request is not incompatible with uncertainty as to the ordained providence of God. Let me say that again. Persistent request is not incompatible with uncertainty as to the ordained providence of God. Paul models for us what our prayer lives ought to look like here. And a dependence upon God's will does not necessarily dictate that you cease from asking God for holy things if that's your heart's cry. Brethren, please don't stop praying for godly things just because God hasn't seemed to answer your request the way that you would have hoped. If I can put it in in a very practical language, and maybe forgive me if this is, is too irreverent, Paul was begging God to go to Rome. And it's not like Paul is unaware of the reality that he will only go if God allows. He's completely aware and fully dependent upon God's will. And yet that doesn't stop him from longing to go and praying that God might see fit to make it happen. And so Christian, don't suppress the righteous desires of your heart. Don't become robotic in your Christian walk. It's nonsense. There are, there are so many ways in which God's sovereignty is denied and misunderstood and sinfully rejected in the church today. So many ways. But it also can be hyper-applied and unbiblically pressed upon a believer's life in ways that it only produces some rote, dry, dull, dead obedience. I want to encourage you, dear brother and sister, don't stop praying for God to save your unbelieving parent. Mothers, don't stop praying, God, please save my daughter. Grant my son the gift of faith. Don't stop praying for healing. Persistent request is not incompatible with uncertainty as to the ordained providence of God. And so plead the throne, brothers and sisters. God, restore my loved one from their chronic depression. You haven't for 20 years. But your providence sure didn't change the apostle's heart. Might it not change mine either when it comes to the desires of my heart that are good and right and godly. Now what I'm advocating for here is, is not some sort of discontentment. We, we, we need to be joyful in the will of God. We need to find contentment in God, a God who knows best. A God who, in every circumstance, never makes a single mistake. God didn't make a mistake by never granting Paul's desire for him to go to Rome. And he won't be wrong if he chooses to never save your loved one. We need to be wholly content and dependent upon the will of God, but that dependence does not necessitate a suppression of your godly desires. And so you need to make them known to God. If the Lord's providence, you may desire to go to the mission field. What a godly desire. But for whatever reason, you've been providentially hindered this far. You, like Paul, have not succeeded in going to Rome, but you need to be encouraged. It didn't stop Paul from beseeching the throne to go, and it shouldn't stop you from beseeching the throne to be sent. 
Paul displayed for us what a God-honoring dependence looks like. Let's now consider the next set of verses under the heading, A God-Honoring Desire. Verses 11 through 13 again read like this. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul longed to go to Rome, that is clear. He longed to visit the believers in Rome, but he longed for a purpose. He longed for a purpose. He didn't long to see their city. He didn't long to admire their architecture of their buildings. He didn't long to observe the the governmental structure and witness the impressive regime in action. Rather, he longed to impart. You see, his desire was dictated by his calling. His thinking and his attitude towards these people were determined by his calling as a Christian. He longed chiefly to impart. Oh, for a Pauline perspective amongst this congregation here at Covenant Community Church. Brethren, Paul was properly credentialed to write this letter to Rome, and like we've discussed already, so too are we. Properly credentialed to minister the gospel in the different contexts that he calls us to as a church and as a, calls us to as individuals. But do we have a God-honoring desire? We're properly credentialed, as we are in Christ, we speak the apostolic authority of the word of God, but do we have the right longing? Do we long to impart? We all had some desire to join this work. We all had a longing of some sort to be a part of what God might be doing in this community. But why? Did we long to see the building saved? Did we long to maintain our friend group? Did we long to not be embarrassed with the perception of failure? Did we long to try something new because we weren't content with where God had us? Did we long to belong to something our friends seemed to be excited about? Or do we long to impart? Do we long to use the spiritual gifts that God has given us to, like Paul, look beyond ourselves to those who might benefit from the grace that we have received in order to strengthen this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is a God-honoring desire. And it's not just for unbelievers, is it? This longing to impart in this context for Paul is to other believers, Yes, we should look to evangelize and impart the gospel to the unbelievers in this community, but we should also be looking to encourage each other, our fellow believers in this community. Paul is looking to impart the gospel to the church in Rome, to to other believers. Verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This ought to be happening both inside and, and outside of our walls. Just this week, as as I'm studying this passage, I've had conversations with many of you that have been so encouraging to my faith. Uh, I'm tempted to to call out many of you by name, but I I suppose I I probably shouldn't. But you've been a tremendous blessing to me 
As I watch you navigate the, the journey of Christian life and have a front row seat to watch you wrestle through difficult things, it's a tremendous blessing to me. My faith is strengthened. Lord willing, we are mutually encouraged. And hopefully this is happening in, in all different kinds of contexts in our church and in care groups as we're meeting together to study hospitality and the other things that we're walking through. It, it isn't just a one-way street. It isn't just top-down. But there's a give and take in the relationships amongst the group where sometimes you are encouraging and sometimes you're the ones being encouraged using the ways that God has gifted you to bless one another. This is Paul's vision for his relationship with these believers in Rome. Building one another up, as Jude 20 tells us. Christian fellowship ought to bring mutual joy and benefit. A God-honoring desire modeled by Paul is, is a relationship that would be fruitful. He, he desires that he may reap a harvest. He, he longs to taste the fruit of their mutual encouragement. Yet another reason why Christianity is not meant to be lived on an island. A, a reason why committing to a local church that preaches the gospel and believes the Bible is vital to your Christian walk. It's so you can taste the fruit of mutual encouragement. When's the last time you prepared for a test? For some of you, it may have been many, many years ago. But when's the last time you prepared to, to take a test? Maybe a certification for your job or um, for those of you who are in school, maybe you studied to, to take an exam. I remember when I was studying to take the, the NREMT, the, the hardest test I've ever taken personally, the nationally registered test for emergency medical technicians. It's a test that is known for being very difficult. It's not like bar exam level. It's not like the board exams for, for doctors. But, but in, the, in terms of the run-of-the-mill non-collegiate tests, it's written to try to trick you. 40% of people fail the first time. The only reason I was able to pass that silly thing was because I had amazing classmates. We, we had study groups that were extremely helpful. And I was able to look at their notes and benefit from their study, benefit from their work, benefit from their life. And, and I tried to put in the work too. I tried to not be a leech. But, but my classmates were the reason I passed. I'll be honest. And verse 12 is, is a bit like Christians sharing notes before a big test. Where, where you aren't going to be able to survive on your own. You need the mutual, mutual edification of the brothers and sisters that you are committed to. And Paul is aware of this. In a manner of speaking, he's like, wait, I can't wait to get there to share notes with you. The notes that you have accumulated in life about the Christian faith, we need each other. How mutually edifying this will be. It's one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews instructs us not to forsake the assembling together as, the, as is the habit of some. When we forsake the Lord's Day worship, you're missing out on the study group. You're left to your own notes. and What a terribly unwise position to put yourself in. What a sinfully prideful, arrogant, and irresponsible dis disposition. Ah, I got this on my own. I don't need the local church. It's just me and Jesus. That's destined for failure. You don't get Jesus without his body. And the different parts of the body are there for the betterment of one another. This is a God-honoring desire. We've considered a God-honoring dependence, a God-honoring desire. Let us turn our attention as we close to our final heading, a God-honoring duty. 
verses 14 and 15 again read like this. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul declares that he's under obligation. In other words, he has a duty. To both Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, this is his duty. And notice it's a duty without distinction. Paul is emphasizing here, as, as he does in other places and other epistles, the reality that neither race, nor social status, nor gender, nor background, nor skin color, nor economic class, it doesn't matter. Whether you are Greek or barbarian, Gentile or Jew, male or female, slave or free, wise or unwise. Unwise is, is probably a, a better translation here than fool. He, he doesn't mean fool as an ignorant, I, I don't think. He means fool as an uneducated, un, unlearned, unwise. Regardless, the, the duty that he has is contingent upon one thing and one thing only. And it's not any of the aforementioned. It's whether or not you have a pulse. If your heart is pumping blood, I have a duty, Paul says, per my new salvation and calling, per the grace and apostleship that has been given to me, to look outside of myself towards you. And if you bleed red, you are my target. All need the gospel. Everyone. Everyone. Jesus died for everyone. And when I say Jesus died for everyone, I mean he died for everyone without distinction. Not everyone without exception. No, not everyone will, will be in heaven. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that heaven is full of all kinds of different people. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. This is who I'm obligated to minister the gospel to, Paul declares. The need for the gospel crosses every single social construct and cultural line. And notice here, this is, this is so interesting. He says that he is eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a group of Christians. He's writing to the church. Verse 7, to those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's writing to saints. And he tells them in verse 15 that he's eager to preach the gospel to them. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to a group of Christians. Huh? That's huge. So often in, in today's world, we tend to operate as if those out there are the needy ones. The people of the world are the ones that need the gospel. The lost need the gospel. The, the sinner needs the gospel. The unbelieving needs the gospel, which is obviously true. But Paul here realizes that the saint needs the gospel just as much as the sinner. The believer needs the gospel much like the unbeliever, that the lost are desperate for the gospel as are the found. To speak in, in theological terms, that the gospel is for our sanctification as much as it is for our justification. The gospel is what has saved us as well as what will continue to save us as well as what will save us one day. There's a little book by Milton Vincent. It, it's called a Gospel Primer for Christians. There are some copies on the resource table. Feel free to, to grab one on your way out. But I don't know if there's a more important book out there on that table. And it has completely shaped my thinking here. 
And he uses Romans 1 to, to drive the point here. It's all about the reality that Christians need to be preaching the gospel to themselves and to other saints in their sphere and not just to sinners. I was first shown this book when we lived in, in South Carolina by one of Leah's co-workers, and since I've probably given more copies of that book away than any other. And to be frank, it's terrifying to me to think about where I would be if I had not learned this truth in this practice. Honestly. The need to preach the gospel to yourself. 2022 was a pretty rough year on the Embry household. And I don't talk about it a whole lot. But I really have no idea how we would have survived if not for the spiritual discipline of preaching the gospel in our home. The only reason Lee and I were able to endure the valley is because, as she said countless times, we were neck deep in the gospel. We preach it to ourselves. We preach it to each other. We preach it to our boys. We surrounded ourselves with people who preached it to us. The gospel was our only hope on so many levels. And brother or sister, the gospel is your only hope on so many different levels. The gospel was our desperate need in days of trouble. And brother or sister, the gospel is your desperate need. Whether you are in the valley or on the mountaintop, you need the gospel. You need the gospel this week to survive this week of parenting. You need the gospel this week to keep the peace in your home. You need the gospel to restore broken relationships. You need the gospel to bring hope. You need the gospel to stand against Satan. You need the gospel to provide comfort. You need the gospel to provide assurance that your soul so desperately needs. You need the gospel to fight against depression. You need the gospel to flee from sin. You need the gospel, believer. Christian, saint, you need the gospel. Do you see, can you see why Paul is so eager? To preach the gospel to them, to a group of Christians? This is his God-honoring duty. The Apostle Paul was given eyes to see, and he used them to look beyond himself to those who might benefit from the grace he has received. That is true. I do believe that's the main point of the text. But that doesn't mean we ought to neglect ourselves in the process. We need to look beyond ourselves and preach the gospel, but in doing so, we must remember, brothers and sisters, the need to preach the gospel to the mirror as well. Please pray with me.